morning. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel Bible Church, and it's a, it's a privilege to worship with you this morning. Well, it's June, and it's getting a little warmer. It's still very pleasant outside, but it is getting warmer. But if you were to come visit me in my office, there's a really good chance you'll find me wearing a fleece just a jacket to keep me warm inside. You see, the ACs in Texas work really well, don't they? And uh, I get cold easily. So I'm cold in the winter, and I'm cold in the summer. It's just the story of my life. Now, can you pin down the coldest that you've ever been in your life? I can, without a doubt. You see, it was one of my very first days of my very first winters in Glen Allen, Alaska. It was January. And I had just arrived in Glen Allen as a new Bible college student. And apparently the dean of students there thought it would have been uh, a good acclimating uh, experience for all new students to help volunteer for the Copper Basin 300. The Copper Basin 300 is a 300-mile sled dog race. It starts right there in Glen Allen, which was my new home. So my job as a volunteer was to help the mushers handle their sled dogs before the race. It was a time trial. So the mushers and their sled dogs would start one at a time, and they would space them. So this was over several hours in the middle of January. And my, dog was, my job was to hold a dog's collar preventing it from taking off before it was its turn. Now, if you've ever seen a sled dog before a race, they're a lot like a two-year-old jumping on the bed. So if you can imagine, half of my day was just spent holding on to a sled dog's collar as it was jumping up and down, revved up for its turn to start the race. Now, as a dog lover, this was a very heartwarming experience. But that was the only thing warm about me for several hours that morning. So I looked it up. The average temperatures or the range of the average temperature in Glen Allen in January is negative 7. That's not the coldest. That's the average coldest to 7 degrees. Now, as cold as that sounds, I promise you it is actually colder if you're standing in it. So I had every piece of winter gear I owned on. Everything I had. I was already wearing it, and I was still freezing, and I began to wonder, maybe these dogs aren't jumping up and down simply because they're excited, but because they too are freezing. And so I started jumping up and down along with these dogs, hoping it would warm me up. And as I'm doing that, I can't help but notice what all the mushers are wearing. Their outfit is something like a combination of a space suit for a jacket and firefighters' overalls for pants. As I look at this, I realized uh, not only am I not appropriately dressed, but I don't think any human was meant to stand in this cold for this long. It's unnatural. So, miserable, I decided to take a break, go inside, warm myself up, despite the fact that as I was leaving, the dean of students made fun of me for being a wimp. And I said, hey, look, I was born and raised in Texas. And being this cold is not natural for man. We're not meant. God did not make us to stand in this cold for this long. 
Do you know what else is unnatural for man? Something God did not create us to bear? It is unnatural for us as his image bearers to bear our guilt. To bear our guilt for our sins. We were made by God to be in fellowship with him. To enjoy a relationship with our relational God who is also holy. Guilt is not something we were ever meant to bear. It's unnatural. And as cold as I was that morning, and I was cold, the discomfort I feel internally when I deliberately sin against God, it far surpasses the discomfort of being freezing cold in sub-zero temperatures. There's no comparison. When I break fellowship with God because of deliberate sins, it just crushes me. It's an unbearable feeling, and that guilty feeling follows us as believers. There's no escape. There's no amount of clothes you can put on to warm up your heart for that guilty feeling of purposely sinning against God and hiding it or running away from it or excusing it. That feeling is God's displeasure, his displeasure for a Christian's offense. It's the exact opposite of enjoying the presence of God, enjoying the pleasure of his presence, fellowshipping with him. There's a break, and you know it, and it hurts, and it haunts you. Hear me, I'm not describing a believer's right standing with God. If you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are eternally secure in Christ. You are righteous with God for all time. That's positional. I'm talking about our present day fellowship. The practical enjoyment of fellowshipping with God. So when we find ourselves experiencing God's displeasure for our deliberate sins, when his presence doesn't bring us pleasure, but extreme displeasure, what are we to do? When we feel the unbearable weight of our guilt, guilt on our conscience that we were never made to bear, what are we to do? Where are we to turn so that we can once again find pleasure in God's presence? This morning, as we continue our summer in the Psalms, we're going to be in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a lament psalm written by King David after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Uriah. He was confronted by one of God's prophets, Nathan, for his sin, for his offense against God. As we address our question how a believer moves from experiencing God's displeasure to once again experiencing the pleasure of God's presence, we're going to break our psalm into three parts. Part one is God's mercy. He is so merciful. God's mercy. Part two is David's confession. We're going to look at the nature of David's confession. And then part three, David's motives. What propelled him to seek God's forgiveness, to confess his sin to God? So let's begin with part one, God's mercy. We're going to just read the first two verses. 
to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So in verses 1 and 2, I want you to notice David uses three different words that act as synonyms describing his sin. It's this full-orbed expression of his sin. The last line of verse 1, you see my transgressions. In verse 2, he talks about my iniquity and my sin. And he pairs with each of these synonyms different metaphors describing what he desires God to do with his sin. Okay? At the end of verse 1, we see him ask for God to blot out his transgressions. Verse 2, he pleads for God to wash him and cleanse him. In other words, David is asking God for complete and total forgiveness. Not just partial, but complete forgiveness. He's asking God to strike from the record, just blot it out, his rebellion, to completely purify him from his crookedness and perversion by actually removing from him the guilt of his deliberate sins. David still had to live with the consequences for his sins. And you can read about those consequences in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Sin always has consequences. But in terms of his relationship with God, he was totally forgiven as if it never happened, which is remarkable. He was fully restored in his fellowship with God, completely. So on what basis did David ask God for forgiveness? What did he stand on as he pleaded for forgiveness? Well, in verse 1, we see David's plea for forgiveness was according to God's steadfast love. You see that verse 1? According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. You might be asking yourself, why didn't David just go to the tabernacle and offer up a sacrifice for his sins? Well, believe it or not, in the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, there was no provision... No provision in the sacrificial system for deliberate or premeditated sins, which David qualified for being both deliberate and premeditated in his adultery and his murder. Outright defiance against God's law was seen as rebellion against the sovereign king, Yahweh. The Bible called this type of sin acting with a high hand. And the picture is the sinner raising his fist to God as if to strike him, saying, you have no say in how I will live my life. Pure defiance. And the penalty for sin of the high hand, which David had committed, was death, even for a king. That's why David is passionately, passionately pleading for God's forgiveness according to his loyal love his compassion, his abundant mercy. 
For David, the path to forgiveness rested solely on God's merciful kindness and nothing else. So that's what David casted himself upon. God's mercy, his loyal love. Scholars have long noted the overtones of Exodus 34 in David's plea. You see, Exodus 34 is Yahweh taking Moses and hiding him in the cleft of the rock. And as the Lord passed by Moses, he disclosed his nature through a proclamation to Moses. He declared his character to be loyal, compassionate, merciful, gracious, and forgiving. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 is arguably the clearest expression of who God is in the whole Old Testament. And what it majors on is God's mercy and his desire to forgive. God wants to forgive. That's his heart. David knew this, and he clung to this as he sought God's forgiveness. So this was David's attitude about God the one whom he was seeking forgiveness. He knew God was merciful and wants to forgive. If that was his attitude about God, what was his attitude towards his own sin? How did David view his sin? Well, this moves us to our second point, David's confession. David's confession. We just looked at God's mercy. Let's look at David's confession. Read with me verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. Teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So from these verses, from these verses, here's what I want you to take away as it relates to David's attitude toward his sin. He owned it. He completely owned it. No excuses or attempts to rationalize it away. In other words, David's confession shows us the proper posture of the penitent. The proper posture of the penitent, someone who is remorseful for their sin. A contrite heart, which we'll see here shortly. Repentant. Genuine sorry for sinning against God, for breaking fellowship. So David is not telling us he's sorry just to get God off his back. He's not simply trying to avert the punishment. So look at verse 3. Verse 3 here, we see again that word transgression. Second time we've seen it. The Hebrew for this word implies deliberateness of actions. David is saying, I deliberately rebelled against you. You're right, God. This was a sin of the high hand. David is genuinely confessing his sin of adultery and murder by taking full responsibility for his actions, calling it what it is, rebellion. Challenging the very authority of God. 
So the Hebrew text further emphasizes the genuine nature of David's confession by placing that word, my transgressions, in the emphatic position. Meaning, the very first words out of David's mouth in verse 3 are my rebellion, my transgression against you. He's acknowledging what he did and what he did was wrong. It's a genuine confession with genuine regret or remorse. So my almost two-year-old, he knows how to say sorry. My almost two-year-old um, and our rather large adult male cat, this thing is huge. They're wrestling buddies, okay? My two-year-old, his name is Christian, and he's the baby of the family. And I think it's by God's grace he's the baby of the family or else his little sisters would be tormented by him like this poor cat. He and this poor cat wrestle each other all day, every day. And the only way to get them to stop is to put the cat outside and lock Christian inside. It's the only, that's the only thing we can do. A lot of times we just let him wrestle, the cat, which he does. You can come over and you'll be amazed at this. But sometimes Christian takes it a little too far and will do a double knee drop right on the cat. I mean, just like jump up in the air and land on this cat with two knees and this poor cat just screeches. And in, in my son's defense, this cat can easily run away and hide, but he never does. So we think secretly he enjoys wrestling too. Here's my point. After the double knee drop and this poor cat is just screeching, I will get, go over there to Christian. I'll say, Christian, stop. Be nice to the cat. And he'll just look up at me and go, saw we. And then as soon as I leave the room, he is right back at it. His heart is not penitent, contrite, or sorry for tormenting the cat. He's enjoying it. What we see with my son is the complete opposite of what we see with David. He's owning it. He's saying, God, you're right. I rebelled against you in the worst way. Challenging your very authority as Lord. So looking at verse 4, as we continue in the text. This verse is often misunderstood. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's often misunderstood to mean that we don't need to apologize to others when we sin against them. That's not what David is saying. Jesus makes it very clear that we're called to seek the forgiveness of others whom we have sinned against. The point David is making in verse 4 is that ultimately, when we sin, we are sinning against God himself. That there is no sin we commit that is not also a sin against God. And God is justified to judge. Or in the believer's case, the New Testament believer's case, he is fully justified to discipline us for our sin. Even if you think God had nothing to do with it, you have sinned against him. So in David's case, God would have been fully justified, fully justified to ignore David's plea for mercy for forgiveness, and instead carry out the just penalty for his sin, which was death. 
So that's David's confession. The quality of David's words and insight into David's heart as he confessed to God. He agreed with God his actions were sinful and he was genuinely grieved. Let's look at our third part here in our psalm this morning. David's motives for seeking for forgiveness. Why did David want forgiveness? What was he after? So in this third part, verses 7 through 19, we're going to see David's motives was for restoration in fellowship with God and renewal from God to be by God's Spirit grown from this, to learn from this. So David's not looking merely to escape God's judgment. No, he simply wants to experience the pleasure of God's presence once again. And even more than that, he wants God to supernaturally change him so that he doesn't do this again. Read with me verses 7 through 19. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So in these verses, let's start with verse 7. David is requesting God to purge him with hyssop. This is a reference to a hyssop branch used in applying water or blood to the worshiper in a purification rite. And his request also in verse 7 for God to wash him points to another ceremonial act, a ceremonial washing of clothes required by the worshiper before entering into God's presence. So both this purging and washing are symbols of God's forgiveness. And the reason behind David's request for forgiveness is so that he shall be clean. Verse 7, shall be clean. And so that he shall be whiter than snow. This is a a moral purity, a spiritual cleansing, both of which David needs in order to be restored to fellowship with God. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be restored to full fellowship with God. That's his desire. That's what he's seeking from God by way of forgiveness. I want to enjoy you again, God. 
I want to enjoy your presence. He describes the polar opposite of enjoying God's good presence in verse 8. Verse 8, the second line there, the second stanza. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Bones in Hebrew poetry represents the seat of our emotions. This is a highly emotionally charged verse. David is describing how he felt when he refused to confess his sin to God. He was zapped by God of all of his emotional strength and vigor. Totally zapped. Bone crushing. Broken bones, this divine zapping of our emotional strength when we try to hide from God our sins. This is such a true-to-life statement for each and every one of us. I know that's exactly how I feel when I sin against God and try to excuse it or move on with my life, hoping to just forget it. But God never does. In fact, when I deliberately sin against God and refuse to confess The feeling that I experience, bone crushing is very appropriate, but the feeling that I experience, what I liken it to, is a coat of death. I just feel as if I have been covered in this coat of death, and I can't take it off. I can't hide from it. I can't run from it. And it's suffocating. It is emotionally zapping. So in exchange for my deliberate sinful actions... That's what we can expect from God every time. He's faithful. He's not going to allow you to sin against him without experiencing the negative consequences that 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 sin brings into your relationship with him. Friends, God's purposes for us as his children, those of us who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God's purposes for us are always good crushing our bones when we sin against him deliberately and refusing to confess is good for us. It's designed to drive us back to God and confess and be restored to experience the joy of fellowshipping with him. So that's what David is portraying for us. He's portraying for us what it looks like to repent, and he's explaining to us why he wants to experience the pleasure of God's presence. So let's look at his other other motive here, why he confessed. What, What was David after from God? As we've said, he wanted to experience spiritual renewal. He wanted to grow from this. He hated the consequences of his sin, and he wanted God to do something in him so that this would not be who he is on a regular basis. He'd be changed. So look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's not asking only for divine forgiveness, but divine change. He's not asking only for divine forgiveness, but divine change at the core of who he is as a human being. David understood he was powerless 
to change himself. And he was pleading with God to change him from the inside. The second stanza of verse 12, we see David say, And uphold me with the willing spirit. For God to uphold David with the willing spirit is God making the kind of person who willingly obeys. It's God making David the kind of person who wants to obey, who sees God's law for what it is, good for him, good for his life, worthy of his obedience. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, David is described as a man after God's own heart. So what's going on here? Why is he asking for God to change his heart and his spirit and his will? Well, whether you're an Old Testament king or a New Covenant believer, we all this morning struggle in our hearts with evil impulses. We just do. The sin within, the flesh, these evil impulses within us. David is no different. And David is a man after God's own heart, not because he never sinned. David is a man after God's own heart because when he did sin, he was sensitive to God's conviction and he grieved that sin. And he confessed it to God with a penitent heart, seeking God's forgiveness. And more than that, seeking to be restored with God in fellowship and renewed by God inwardly to not be that kind of person any longer. No. So that's David's second motive. That's what David wanted as a result of forgiveness. So how does Psalm 51 apply to us as Christians, those of us who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? When we choose to sin, when we follow the evil impulse, when we raise our fist up at God and say, my way, and we find ourselves suffering the consequences, God's displeasure, inescapable, the coat of death as I call it, what are we to do? We confess and we rest. We confess to God with a contrite heart that our actions were sinful. You're right. I was wrong. And with confidence, we rest in Christ's finished work on the cross that he has already paid the penalty for that sin. You see, Psalm 51 acts as a paradigm in many, many ways, even for the New Testament believer today, with how one deals with unconfessed sin. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer, hear me clearly. No amount of confession, no matter how contrite your heart is, will make you right with God. If you're not a believer this morning, you must first trust in Christ alone, His death on the cross on your behalf for your guilt as a sinner to pay the penalty to God for the problem of eternal separation from God. You are not yet a child of His, experiencing fellowship with Him until you believe upon His Son. You trust that Christ, the eternal, spotless Son, paid to God what you owe but never 
could pay. Not for all eternity could you pay back to God your sin against Him. Christ alone paid that penalty by dying in your place on the cross, spotless, so that we could be spotless in Him and we trust in Him alone. But if you are a believer this morning, how we deal with unconfessed sin, as we saw in Psalm 51, is with a contrite heart, repentant. With a contrite heart, we look to God for forgiveness, confessing our sin to Him, bringing it to light, not hiding it, bringing it to light, trusting in His abundant mercy in Christ. That's been paid for. All the while seeking restoration in fellowship and renewal by the Holy Spirit to grow from that. So with that said, there are a few differences in this psalm that I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't point out. There's a few differences regarding David as an Old Testament saint that need to be discussed as we focus on the New Testament believer's relationship with God. First off, there is no sin beyond the atoning work of Christ. There is no sin that is greater than what Christ accomplished on the cross. No matter how deliberate or defiant you are in sinning against God, there is forgiveness. Romans 5.20, but where sin increase, grace abound all the more. Grace is greater. It's greater in Christ every time. So we need not fear, like David, we need not fear that God might not forgive us or restore us or renew us when we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's right there. You have nothing to fear. So David does model the proper type of confession, the penitent, in verse 17, which we can hold on to today. Verse 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God will, oh God, you will not despise. So, not only are all sins forgivable in Christ, but God through His Spirit will lead you to a place where you are genuinely remorseful. Don't fight that. Don't fight that conviction. Go with it, no matter how frightening it is to confront this sin that you've hidden or run away from or excused. Go with God's conviction. Go with God's grace and His mercy in Christ. Secondly, no sin for the new covenant believer amounts to God taking His Holy Spirit away from us. It's just not part of God's program for His children. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would be with Christians and in Christians forever in John 14. John 14, verses 16 through 17. Looking now at verse 11, we see that David was concerned that if God did not forgive him, then he'd lose God's presence. He'd lose the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In David's case, as an Old Testament saint... The Holy Spirit came upon believers, enabling them for a divine task. David's task was to rule as king. With this sin of the high hand, God was fully justified in removing the Spirit from him. 
like he did with Saul. But in his abundant mercy, in his loyalty to his covenant, his compassion, he did not remove the spirit from David. David continued to serve. So again, knowing this, what do we do when we sense God's suffocating displeasure? Broken bones, emotional zapping, code of death for our unconfessed sins. We confess them with the penitent heart, resting in Christ's finished work on the cross, that all debts have been paid. God's forgiveness for the believer, his cleansing and restoration is available and guaranteed if we'd only go to him seeking it. So, unfortunately, we don't always go to him seeking it. We're afraid, or maybe we somehow mistakenly believe this sin is making us happy or giving us a measure of control in our lives, which you need. It's emotionally zapping. It's robbing you. And God is breaking you because of it. It'll never vanish completely. So why do we hide? Why do we, why do we try and run away rather than simply confess it? Well, we're people, broken people, struggling with those evil impulses, struggling against the sin within the flesh. So for the past month, I've been doing these virtual at-home physical therapies for my spine and my lower back. I suffer from lower back issues, and they were getting worse. Uh, I wasn't able to really play with my kids without injuring myself, so I decided to give this a try. I got an email from my insurance company saying, hey, this is covered, it's virtual at-home physical therapy. I was like, well, this might be from God. I'm going to give it a try. If you ask my wife, she'll say I'm doing yoga. I don't do yoga. I don't. And, and if people that do do yoga, like my wife, are doing the exact same exercises I'm doing, then that's, that's their problem. It's not my problem. I'm doing physical therapy for my lower back and my spine. So here's my point. For several years, as I said, I've, I've suffered, and it's, it's robbed me of joy, of pleasure. And so I decided to give this a try, and guess what? It's working. It's not a miracle cure, but it is noticeably working in my life. I am, again, able to experience the small pleasures of bending over and picking up my two-year-old, without pulling my back. And because it's working so well and I'm feeling so much better, you'd assume, well, surely you're doing that regularly, at least as often as your physical therapist is telling you to four days a week. I mean, why not? It's just a little bit of hard work. And look at the benefits you get. Well, surprisingly enough, or perhaps not surprisingly at all, I do not do my physical therapy every day, and I suffer the consequences each and every time. Thankfully, my physical therapist is monitoring my progress, and when I skip a day, she'll send me a little text. Hey, Chad, don't go down that route, that road. Get back on that horse. 
Do your exercises. You know it makes you feel better. I'm with you. Let's do this together. Let's make progress. And it, it helps. And I do get back on track. I do do my exercises the next day. That little gentle prodding, that, that little word of encouragement helps me. Perhaps some of us this morning are experiencing that bone-crushing feeling, that emotional zapping for unconfessed sins. Don't do that. Don't hide those. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to dismiss it. Those have already been paid for. The penalty has been paid. Run to God. Confess your sins with a penitent heart, knowing that you are already fully forgiven in Christ, and so He will forgive you for these sins. He will restore you to fellowship. He will renew you, and guess what? You will experience the most indescribable feeling in the whole world. The joy of God's pleasurable presence. Nothing compares and it's available to each and every one of us. And if you need help with that this morning, please come find me. I will, I will be milling around up here. I will happily help you run to God, confess your sins to Him, and experience that cleansing, that washing, which is supernatural, and which each and every one of us desperately need, need because we were made for fellowship with him. We were not made to try to bear our own guilt. God is merciful. God wants to forgive you and me. All we have to do is go to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through your son, by your spirit, for your glory and our good. We praise you. For Jesus, the utmost picture of your mercy and grace. Teach us your ways, O God. May we be people who learn that you're gracious and merciful and that our sins harm us, and that our sins are not good for us. May we confess them to you on a regular basis when we feel the Spirit's conviction. Teach us, Lord, how to walk with you as your children, beloved by you. Grow us. I do pray that you would guide each and every one of us to bring to light anything that we have hidden, thinking you don't see it, or you don't care, or you've forgotten. May we confess and experience your cleansing. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you'd rise to your feet, we'll dismiss with the benediction. Go, dearly beloved by God, who is compassionate, gracious, merciful, who desires to forgive and will every time because of his son Christ. Go running to him, your father, seeking from him that which only he can give. Amen.